Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I am Rivka Rivera. We're very excited for today's episode. Very excited to share our conversation about Sorry to Bother You with uh, probably one of the the best living anti-capitalist filmmakers today, Boots Riley. Yeah, it's a good one. Get ready. It's a lot of fun. But we're going to talk first. But as always, first, you have to just listen to us talk. You know, sometimes I've seen some like some reviews and comments from people that are like, and most of the reviews are very, very nice on, you know, on the on the podcast players. But I've seen a few that are like, I came here to listen to a movie conversation. And these two people just talked about shit for the first like 10 minutes. One star. (laughs) Yeah, we like this. We like to talk at the top. No, we really like this format because I think it allows beyond talking about the movie. We made a choice that part of our intention in this podcast is also to talk about that intersection of capitalism and media and current events. So this has allowed us to talk about the strike, to talk about really important things on top of the movie. So I um, I defend and stand by and say yes to our choice. So here we are. I absolutely also agree. And this is a good this is a good topic that we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about the the streaming platforms, the Netflixes, the Hulus, the Disney Pluses of the world, because it should be no surprise to everybody that, uh, you know, in the wake of the writer's strike and the actor's strike and along with a lot of other factors that we'll discuss, um, all of these streaming platforms are raising their prices. So. Netflix just announced that it's raising the prices of both of its ad-free plans. The cheaper one will go from $9.99 to $11.99. The other one is going to go from $19.99 to $22.99. Hulu raised the price of its service by 20% over the summer, by $14.99 to $17.99. HBO Max going up a dollar. Disney Plus going up a couple of dollars after already raising its prices $3 in uh, this past December. So... We wanted to talk about this specifically because I think I think the way that some of this will get framed is that, uh, you know, because the greedy writers and actors asked for living wages and to not have all of their likenesses stole by artificial intelligence that like, you know, these streamers just had to raise the prices. Yeah. But that is that is so far from the truth of what is happening. The truth of what is happening is that you know, for close to a decade, these companies were just running on basically like debt and vibes, just debt and vibes. (laughs) They're just like, just like, we're going to just, we're just going to borrow, 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 Uh, you know, uh, interest rates are zero. Money is basically free. We're these giant tech media companies. So we can just borrow all of this money. I could see it in my head. It's like, it's like an Adam McKay movie. And they're like, and then, you know, the pitch is like, Sheila will tell Jackie, Jackie will tell Sam, and it'll just build, and we'll make so much money. And, and like by the end, you're like, yeah, sounds good. And they throw, Wall Street throws money at it and never has to see any receipts. And that's kind of how I envision this business plan went down. I think that's it. I think that, I think that is like exactly what happened for the most part. And then some guys in the back just like, you know, there's like spinning in the chair, throwing money up in the air, like, our crazy idea works. And now we rule the world. <laughs> Send rockets to space. Have you heard of this thing called Netflix? You can watch TV on your computer. Give them $8 billion. <laughs> but yes, that was sort of the model that all of these uh, platforms were operating on. You know, in, in the advent of streaming, um, you know, all of these legacy media companies and some of these new media companies basically were all like, oh, shit, streaming is the future. So, we, they, you know, the last decade has basically been like a content arms race for all of these companies to just like amass these giant libraries of content to produce, to produce, to produce, to produce more and more and more and more. Uh, and then one day, eventually we will be profitable. Mm. And I mean, there's also some speculation that these companies were producing so much because they knew that the, you know, the media contracts that they had with the unions, with the WGA, with SAG, with the Directors Guild, they knew that at a certain point, labor was going to come back at them and be like, Yo, you guys are like 
seriously ripping us off and we need to renegotiate because we are not protected in this new media landscape. So these companies were like, great, well, while while labor is cheap, while money is cheap and we can borrow it, like just amass and just keep producing. And, um, you know, it's all kind of come crashing down. So according to uh, Axios, uh, the number of new original scripted series has shrunk this year after hitting a record high in 2022 because now these companies are actually under pressure to produce profits. So like the main instigator of this is, you know, the last couple of years of inflation, of the Fed raising interest rates, so making money not free to borrow, essentially. And all of these media companies essentially, you know, basically like seeing a, a potential recession on the horizon. That's why we've also seen a bunch of layoffs at a bunch of these big legacy media, media companies. Because everyone was like, oh, we got to tighten the belt. So let's uh, fire people and, you know, do all of the cost-cutting strategies. And so now, uh, between between that, between just like the state of the economy itself, between labor finally getting its due in this new media landscape... These companies are slashing their production budgets. They're not going to be making as much. And 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 now they're also raising their their uh, membership prices. Um, and I, the last thing I wanted to note, it, uh, according to IndieWire, Netflix and Hulu are the only two major streaming services that made a profit by the end of 2022. By contrast, Peacock, Disney+, HBO Max, Paramount+, Plus reported billions of dollars in losses. So... Like 2022 was the last gasp of this new media shit show. And now all of these companies are faced with the reality that like, oh, we have to run an actual business that makes money and can actually pay the people who uh, generate the value a living wage. So I just wanted to like talk about this because I don't want it to get twisted in any way, shape or form that this is like the fault of the writers or the actors or anyone mm. else that actually works on these projects. Uh, forgive me. I'm going to have to go right back to the top here. Did you say premium plan is increasing to, I didn't even know there was a premium plan <laughs> for Netflix. <laughs> Did you just not listen to anything else? I said, you were just like, I was just like, like mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's ads there. Have there been, has there been an ad version? You said ad free. Has there been a version with ads that I was just not even priv privy to? Have they done that already on Netflix? Oh, yeah. I think like pretty much all of these services now have uh, dual tiers. One where you see ads and one that is ad free. You're still paying for both, but just like one is, uh, you know, more expensive than the other. Okay. Um, just taking <laughs> that in. That's, it's so wild. So wild. Yeah, it's wild. I actually, I think I mentioned this on the pod at some point, but I, uh, a few months back was at a friend's birthday and someone there worked at one of the big streaming platforms. And they were saying, you know, uh, you know, if the writers uh, and actors get what they want, then that means that we just can't make as much stuff as we used to. So actually they're hurting themselves because the, then there won't be as many jobs for them. So like if they get the, if they get the wages they're asking for, they're going to be less jobs to pay those wages. Um, and I absolutely pushed back and I was like, well, it sounds like y'all have an unsustainable business model that needs to be rectified mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and uh, adapt to a modern economy where everyone is able to be paid and have their needs met. And maybe like, I don't know, even you guys make money or something. I think you're you're getting to an interesting point, though, which is about the longevity of of this movement and this consciousness that has been Obviously, it was there before the strike, but has come up through the strike is, I mean, I don't agree with this person, but I think what they're pointing out is without even larger systemic change, you could potentially get what we're asking for and be punished. Like, yes. And that, or at so least that is the threat. That is the threat. And and potentially a real threat. It's not a threat that we should mean. It, it's not a threat. It's an existential. It's existential in the sense that okay but the other option is what have robots take over our jobs and we don't have jobs either way it doesn't work but i think what it's pointing to is that there is there's still a bigger there's still more once we get it's not like the actor's needs are met it's it's done there has to be a continued effort to fight <laughs> this is capitalism right like this is the fight against capitalism is that like mm -hmm. i think what we're seeing here with the how much prices are going to increase Unless there's a change in the bigger system and the way 
that we figure out to make art and media, we're going to keep coming up against threats like that that could be very real. That's exactly right. And to put a, a finer point on that, these companies have basically been running on fictional business. They've been running in a they've been running in a fictional media ecosystem where they can just, you know, basically keep treading water, keep borrowing money, keep not being profitable. And what has happened is now like the 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 fictional businesses that these companies have been running is now has now met the reality of uh, like the media business. So it's like all mm. of these companies running on fiction have now met reality and yeah, and now they have to change. Now they have to adapt. Now they have to actually create a sustainable business model. Which is so funny because I feel like the attack on any kind of um, revolutionary thought around changing systems is that's fictitious and that that's um, too, what's the, utopian? Yeah, to like pie When in the you've sky. actually proven the fact that fiction works. It's, you know, I'm thinking about our Wizard of Oz episode and the the basics of that was like we learned about just how much money is made up. You know, how much these mm -hmm. things are. Someone makes up the way it works. And I'm just thinking about in a very basic sense, it is an imagination war that we're at yeah. often. And and this is where I think the intersection of art is really, really important. And I know there's amazing writers, Adrian Marie Brown, who speaks to this, um, many people activists who speak to this um idea but like we need to expand our ability to imagine and throw away the rules with abandon the way that these cap the way the elitist capitalist class does the way these yeah. tech people they there were no rules there aren't rules How, what would it t i'm thinking yeah. about this in the upcoming elections too like what does it take to just let go a little of the fear and start to say well if i decide that I want to put my money towards a new system and you decide and you decide, maybe we can start to make it happen. Like that is the purpose of organizing is that we're trying to just increase our ability to believe in alternatives and therefore buy into act towards alternatives. That's such a good point. Like the, the ruling class, the corporate class and the politicians that work for them, they make up stuff. They make up shit for themselves all the time. They just run on fiction and bullshit. But then as soon as you propose something, you know, like uh, Medicare for all, something that would actually like materially meet people's needs, they're like, well, that's unrealistic. Uh, that's, yeah. Come on. That's, come on. We only deal <laughs> in things that it can actually happen here. More bombs, please. Like... More bombs. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, that's, I think, all we wanted to hit on that because we want to get to our interview with Boots Riley. But before we jump into our conversation, we just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation about Sorry to Bother You with Boots Riley. Okay, we are so excited to be joined by Boots Riley. Boots is a director, screenwriter, musician, activist, and organizer. He's the lead vocalist of music groups The Coup and Street Sweeper Social Club. And he is the writer and director of the TV series I'm a Virgo and the 2018 feature film Sorry to Bother You, which we will be discussing today. Boots Riley, welcome to Movies versus Capitalism. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, I never... I've never listened to the podcast, but have seen the title many times and thought I should listen to that. And um, now this will be the first one that I'll I'll listen to. Uh, but, well, I probably won't listen. I'll I'll check out the first few seconds to make sure, sure my sure. voice sounds good, and then I'll listen to whoever was last week. 
You know, we appreciate that honesty. Yeah. I, I would have, we would have been able to pick up if you were bullshitting us right off the top. So, Boots, before we jump into talking about the film, I just wanted to ask how you're feeling now that WGA has won a contract. We've been talking a lot. We've been following a lot of the organizing. We're still following what's going to happen with SAG. Um, but just curious, I know that you've been following it as well, how you're feeling about the contract. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, that there are a lot of things that people said couldn't even be touched, right? That we were we were told was impossible, like anything about AI. And, and matter of fact, when you look at other industries, when there should have been a labor reaction to certain uh, uh, technologies that that made it worse for the working class, there wasn't an organized re labor response to it, at least in the U.S. And we were always told, as a matter of fact, we're, we're, you know, the argument against organizing itself is that robots are going to replace us, right? And so we should be uh, happy about that. Uh, we should be happy to, to accept whatever we want. And that, m meanwhile, that argument has been happening since the late 50s, at least, right? Sure. Uh, and, and, and there has been, um, you know, to the extent that there has been a shrinkage of the U.S., of jobs in the US, uh, manufacturing jobs in the US since the 70s, there's been many studies shown that as that shrinkage was happening, meaning companies moving overseas or moving to other countries for cheaper labor, that there were uh, various times that, that militant strikes could have stopped that, right? And similarly, so, so I'll, I'll walk back my assessment that it hasn't happened before, you know, longshoremen, they shut down things, you know, at the drop of the dime comparatively to everyone else, right? There's been many decades when the, when the uh, companies, the shipping companies have said, look, we could do this automated. And longshoremen are like, well, you won't be making any money during that whole time, you know, that you try yeah. to switch over to an automated port and um, have shut it down. And so that's why it's not totally automated. So I, I would say that this, what we were doing here was in line with that around AI. But, but for the most recent part of history, we've been just, technology has been rolled out and rolled over us. We're going to just monitor everything you say and do, and you're not going to like it and write as many think pieces as you want. We don't mind, right? You know, and then in this case, uh, we pushed back on that. And so there, there's some protections there that uh, weren't, being had before i i would say uh that 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 there were significant gains around that that we wouldn't have gotten without such a fight and more than that even and i would have to say because this is where m some of my interests lie beyond that actual fight is that a lot of people were inspired to fight and that inspiration to fight is what got uh ups bosses to cave in all those sorts of things, the, the assessment of where the working class is in their readiness is changing a lot of the fight right now. Yeah, the UAW now as well, the auto workers for sure. Yeah, definitely. It was awesome watching, you know, just such a visible, because, you know, it's Hollywood, such a visible labor battle take place in front of so many, you know, like the, I felt like the eyes of the country were all watching what was going on in Hollywood. And I think for a lot of people, they were like, oh shit, you can do this? You can just like yeah. stop working and, and demand better pay and working conditions. We that, That's incredible. So Definitely. yeah, we're, we're stoked that the WGA got their contract and, you know, waiting for SAG to get theirs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm eager to jump into talking about the film because there's, you know, it's all about organizing. And so I'm sure this theme will come up and we can talk about it more deeply. So we are talking about Sorry to Bother You, written and directed by you, our second writer-director to come on and talk about their film. We had Patricia Resnick talk about 9 to 5. So, Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah, cool. it was a really yeah. cool conversation. Um, but it it's fun. It's Normally, we're critiquing a film with a guest, but we're going to be talking about your work. <laughs> and the film stars oh. Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Stephen Yoon, Jermaine Fowler, and Danny Glover. The budget was reportedly $3.2 Terry Cruz, too. Terry oh, Cruz. I mean... 
Army Hammer, that's right. Hammer. Forgot to wrap that yeah. in as well. Yeah. Well, everybody in that, yeah, everybody's amazing. Omari Hardwick, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. The voices of David Cross and Patton Oswalt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'd be the whole podcast. Definitely, they were the first two on board. I so. was reading that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the budget was right. reportedly three point two million. It grossed over eighteen million worldwide. Well, I don't. I don't want to. I don't. You don't know. No, I do want to correct you. Uh, a, we actually spent four million on it, and, okay. it, and with marketing. And, no, no, four. Yeah, four million, and and the U.S. domestic box office was twenty eight. Oh damn! Okay, yeah, so yeah. you know that 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 tally is from earlier on. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. All right, that so is online, but you, you got to take this up with the people at Box Office Mojo. They're, yeah, 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 yeah. They, well, we're officially correcting time, it here. So yeah, yeah. This is an official correction. Yeah, maybe it was that the worldwide was 28 box office. Okay. I'm saying, but Let's just say but 38. You seem really hung up on how much your movie made for an anti-capitalist <laughs> Uh Because I have, to convince, <laughs> I have to convince investors to put money into my next movie. So Absolutely. I don't want the wrong numbers going out there. <laughs> so Sorry to Bother You follows the down-on-his-luck Cassius Green played by Lakeith Stanfield, who out of economic desperation takes a job at a local telemarketing company, Regal View. After Cassius is instructed to put on a white voice during his calls, he skyrockets to success at the company, eventually becoming a power caller. At the same time, his co-workers begin organizing their workplace and forming a union as Cassius rises through the ranks and learns more about the nefarious business of Regal View's corporate elite, putting him between management and his comrades. So a little bit of uh, historical context for when this film was released. Released uh, domestically, I think, on January 20th, 2018. Is that correct, Boots? Sounds right. No, <laughs> January 20th? No. That was uh, that was when it was at Sundance. That's uh, when it was at Sundance. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But so, still the same, we're, we're still the same time period, 2018. So at Yeah, this, yeah, it came out in June 2018. Gotcha. Mm. In theaters. So during this time, in case our listeners have forgotten, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, in January, Amazon opens its very first Amazon Go, the first completely cashierless grocery store in Seattle, Washington. In February, a mass shooting occurs at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, becoming the deadliest high school shooting in U.S. history. In March, the Republican-led Senate passed a bill to loosen bank regulations set up by the Dodd-Frank Act in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. In May, the Supreme Court upholds a law preventing employees from filing class action lawsuits against their employers over pay and hourly disputes. In September, the U.S. Senate held confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, which included testimony from Christine Blasey Ford, who had accused him of sexual assault. And in November's midterm elections, the Democrats win control of the House of Representatives, including newcomers Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Fucking, that feels like... 50 years ago. That's that crazy. So <laughs> yeah. So Boots, the first thing we usually ask our guests is why did you choose this movie for us to watch? But we get to do this again. We get to ask you, why did you make this movie? You know, I, I, I just, I sat down and it was, I just wrote the first scene, right? And I had an idea of what the movie, why did I want to make a movie like this? It's pretty much what all of my work talks about, right? Which is, has to do with people figuring out where their power is and has to do with people figuring out how to engage with the world in, a, in, in personal ways, but it, showing that the more that we engage in a larger way, you know, the, you know it has an effect on our personal life. So my, my work has always been that, right? And, and, and humor, um, I didn't even know I was using humor in my work till a friend of mine told me like three albums in, right? Like, <laughs> like, oh, you do that funny stuff. And I was like, what? <laughs> I do? You know? What did you, and, what did you, what did you think you were doing before someone pointed that out to you? You know, I knew that there were, to me, like, that's what like, you know, lyricism was, which was like what they would call punchlines, which often was highlighting uh, contradictions. And, you know, th from my background uh, in, you know, being in a radical organization, a lot of the people that taught me were folks 
They were just, they were good, good at talking to people. They were, they were full of optimism about how things could happen. Right. And so their way of being, you could say would be funny. Right. And you know, it'd be because they, they point out this contradiction and ramp it up and that would be the, the funny thing that happens. And so to me, a lot of the punchlines from like a lot of my favorite rappers were just that you say this thing and you think they're going to go here, but they skip over large bodies of thought and come to this other thing Hmm. that just makes you be like, Oh shit, that's tight. So, you know, I also have friends who do music and they're all about anger. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. all about, I won't say all about, but mostly about anger. That's the main thing. Like these things are going on. You should be enraged. You should be upset. And, you know, that's kind of a punk aesthetic that kind of comes through sometimes even to hip hop. And but what I knew from organizing, trying to get people involved in things was that that was a thing that made people go to sleep. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm Uh fucking mad. I can't do anything about it. I'm so mad. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like zone out and I'm not coming to, I'm not going to come help support this thing. I'm not going to be part of this strike. And part of that had to do with what we were saying was the possible answer. How could we change it? And so I knew all of that had to be wrapped up in it. And so that added to the aesthetic of my, my music, which was trying to be hopeful through talking about what can be done and the way that power works and optimistic in terms of seeing the absurdity of of it was not just, you know, showing the absurdity of something shows you that it doesn't have to be that way, right? Wow, there's so many things you said that I wanna touch on. First, I think just hearing the simplicity of starting with looking to tell a story of a character who's finding their power, seeing how they can find their power and their relationship to power. Because in this rewatch, I was so connected to just how we are all Cassius Green, how we've all had the moments under capitalism where we feel in like an incompetent asshole doing a job. But we get to what I love about films and what I love about art and that we get a chance to practice, you know, by by watching Cassius, we get a chance to practice going through and making decisions about where we want to align our power, what power we have. So that was really moving. And I think this film does it remarkably well. One thing that came up when we were talking with uh, Patricia about nine to five was how those characters felt. So even though she started writing it about with the idea of I want to write about labor, that in the writing of it, she wasn't thinking, she'd shared that she wasn't thinking about politics in the characters. She was just thinking about the politics as you shared, like not thinking about the humor, just the humor is inherent in the music and in the truth of it that I felt that also applied to this film. The humor, it was so funny, especially now in this rewatch in a way that I wasn't laughing the same way in 2018. Maybe, Maybe it's just become so much more real that it also makes that juxtaposition more absurd. But also the politics of these characters, too, felt very much like there wasn't... We've seen films where you can feel they're trying to write politics and the politics are not inside of the characters, just inherent, like, Mm -hmm. in their nature. We're all political beings. Like, it's not something outside of us. So I love films that capture that, that just by our rehearsal of being inside, walking with them, being getting the chance to be cash, getting the chance to be Detroit, getting the chance to try and squeeze, we are understanding that we're all inherently political human beings. We don't have to try to be. And therefore, politics is for everyone. Definitely. Something else you mentioned, Boots, is how like a story like this, or at least in your storytelling and in the way that you craft your, your worlds, and using absurdity and using the like the extremity of contradiction and using absurdity to point out those extremities i it was also resonant to something that patricia said cuz she was talking when she was originally developing 9 to 5 with jane fonda jane fonda was like i want to make a movie about like secretaries and their labor struggles but it's got to be a comedy cuz i think that'll be more palatable um and i think that'll help get the message across better 
And I don't know if you think about it as like as that, like linearly, like, you know, comedy is the best vehicle for the stories that I'm telling or it's just that this is this is your style. This is your tone. No, no, I think it's I think it's that, okay, if you were to analyze something, you'd be uh, leaving big parts of an idea out to point out and and to uh, highlight certain big contradictions like you know, whether you're talking about how capitalism works or even just talking about how a motor works. You are you are talking about you're you're choosing things that you think are important, juxtaposing them. And by doing that, you are uh, heightening the contradiction, right? In order to 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 show that you are showing that contradiction. And now in in tragedy, it's usually you know, also this heightened contradiction that, that, you know, you're focusing on this one thing in someone's life and, 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 and drama, you know, you know, that's there. Uh, but more so in comedy, that's what you're also doing is, you know, what I was, as I was saying before, it's heightening the contradiction and that's this absurdity. And, and to me, it just flows freely because, you know, if I'm going to show what's absurd about life, that to me, that's me showing, that's me analyzing what's there. And that's going to come out as as comedy. And, and, and for me, it's also, you know, it's a lot of work to edit the comedy out of life. It's a lot more work. It's a lot more <laughs> unnatural. <laughs> you know, when I see something that has no comedy, it f doesn't feel like life to me. It feels like someone is trying to paint this picture. Not not that I don't enjoy it, enjoy things that aren't comedies. But to me, there is so much that comes in the natural way people talk, yeah. in the ways people think, that is just comedy. And 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 I think it just depends how you were trained. Some people were trained to not to not think of that as cinematic. And obviously, we're always leaving something out. But I'm drawn to those things because they seem more human, that part that, that's funnier. While I was writing Sorry to Bother You, I, I, I got to certain points where I was like, okay, I'm telling people this story. But when I, when I make music, for instance, I'm, putting, I, I'm, I'm doing it with certain music that makes people feel a certain thing. Right. And that has to do with the ideas. It's not just the words. It's not just the knowledge of what I'm talking about. It's... It's this certain thing that's between the words, that's between the ideas. It's, it's this visceral feeling, which is why the music works. And so I started thinking about that with the film, like how do I do things that make people feel it viscerally, right? And so some of those things are things like surprises, like the garage door opens or, you know, something like that and, and kind of keeps you on your toes or something's happening. And, and when I came to this, I, this understanding that I needed to follow what I do with music and, and put that into the, the uh, script was uh, when I was writing the, the part for uh, Danny Glover's character, Langston. When I was 24, after we put out our second album, you know, I started, I got a, what I thought was a midlife crisis and was like, I've been a fucking artist for my whole adult life, what am I doing with myself? And, and I didn't really have a high esteem for artists at the time. And so I quit and we started an organization called the Young Comrades, but I was good at sales already. So I could work uh, one day every two weeks at a, at a telemarketing place. It was actually telefundraising. So I had those experiences from, from that. Long story short, the organization collapsed and by then I had gotten a new uh, respect for art and, and what it could do. But so the, the, the talk about the white voice was something that I had actually learned and I was just gonna have that in there and be part of it. Was that something that's like someone had explicitly told you or you just kind of like picked up on your no, own? No, you figure it out. It's uh -huh. just, and, and contrary to like what a lot of people commented that it's about code switching, when actually code switching uh, is often live and in your face and a lot of the ways it's talked about is like to make someone feel safe that although you're black you are 
not the black person they're afraid of. In this case, I was actually trying in the real life uh, and even in the film, I was actually trying to I was trying to deceive the callers by making them think that I was white. Right. Hmm. So that's a little different than code switching. But anyway, so, yeah, it was something I picked up on. And um, and and everybody that was not white that did well also did that. Right. So I just wanted to put I wanted to uh, vocalize that. And as I was writing it, I was like, well, this is me telling people about it. And, you know, maybe even it could be funny if someone does like a nasally voice or, or does something like that. And, it, you know, that that's not just telling people about it. But I was like, how do I make people feel this part of the idea where it feels disembodied and there's something that feels kind of wrong about it that, and, and that you don't quite put your finger on? And matter of fact, yeah, people can write whole papers about why it's needed and what in what cases and all that. But there's something about the feeling. And, and I start that's what made me start thinking about what I do with music. And I was like, OK, I got to do this thing. And so then, then I wrote Overdub by White Voice. And right then it made me think of the movie differently and go back and add certain things in. And that was also because at that time, too, I had been reading The Conversations, which is a, a, a book of transcribed conversations between Michael Ondaatje and Walter Murch. And are you familiar with Ma Walter Murch? No. Uh, Wal Walter Murch was part of the group of folks that came up here to Northern California from LA with Francis Ford Coppola, uh, George Lucas. And okay. he, he uh, is the first person to call himself a sound designer, um, but he edited, you know, he's the editor on Apocalypse Now and on Godfather. So the whole like and American zoetrope. Crew, yeah, all, all of that yeah, yeah. stuff. And, and you know, wrote THX 1138, all that kind okay. of stuff, right? And, uh, you know, he, how do I put this in a nutshell? I can't, but it's, uh, you can edit it. Okay, it, you know, he talks about how film, you know, was an invention and, and that, uh, obviously, and, and uh, <laughs> that, 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 that even Edison didn't think was going to be that big. He thought that records, sound recordings were gonna be bigger because, you know, it wasn't, at the time when it came, it was like a novelty, like, you know, because people had seen photos of themselves and people had seen themselves in mirrors and they'd seen, but, but what they hadn't heard was their own voice. So people were really taken aback by hearing their own voice. Yeah. But, you know, he talks about the culture needing to be right at the right time for a certain invention. I'm, I'm gonna bring this about around to music. He, you know, and who knows whether this is right or not, but it inspired me. He said, you know, the reason why films, film was able to take off as an invention is because the narrative form was able to be used. It wasn't just the three act play thing. It was able to keep people on because it was able to change scenes vastly and change tones, you mm -hmm. know, like it wasn't just this, this this one thing and um the reason why people were ready for that is because you know and again this is his what he puts forward is because uh classical music had already started having these had had these suites and different sections that had different emotions and 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 kept people along for the ride because of that right and um and had organized it in that way in in a lot of ways narrative films took on that same thing and so and so he talked about how musical notions really worked in film and this is and I was like okay cool so I'm just gonna <laughs> use what I think about in music for that same thing I gotta say that's like what, what I'm hearing you say is that like you 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 have a very like organic approach to your creativity like the, you know I'm sure you're doing like outlining and structuring, but like, it sounds like you write from a place of like, uh, you know, I have this organic thought, I have this feeling, I have this image, I have yeah, this sound. Yeah, how does it feel? I have this sound in my mind and like, like, I don't know what the story is, but I know that this part is in it, which I find very interesting because on this rewatch, I was really like, I was really blown away by how well of a, how well structured this movie is and how many different ideas and threads it covers 
um, in a very short amount of time. I mean, just like, just to go from the top, like Cash as like this disaffected youth who like, you know, like a lot of youth in America doesn't know what he wants, doesn't know who he's supposed to be, doesn't have any meaning in his life. Rising through the ranks of this, you know, of this, this evil corporation that we all know is evil from the jump, but like we learn more and more about it. And then watching him rise through the ranks and then, you know, it, it very easily could have been a story about, you know, person gets job at corporation, finds out corporation is evil and then, you know, and then leaves. But then you also weave in the story of labor organizing and unionization. And then it creates this secondary conflict between him and his coworkers and his his partner, Detroit. So I was really like, I, I was, and then, you know, obviously we get to the horse dicks at the end, but I was really impressed by how many different threads this all was brought together by. And I'm curious, was there ever a version where like th there wasn't a unionization effort? It was just the story of cash in this telemarketing company. Or did you always know that like there had to be some labor organizing happening here? Well, there was a, maybe in my mind before I started writing a much simpler version of the story. And in that simpler version of the story, it was going to be that that the rapping scene happened and that's when he realized what what he had done wrong and he had not been part of the strike and it was going to be because i'm th i was thinking budget when i thought of the story mm. right so i was like okay it goes from that to that he has to ride his bike across the city to be at the at the strike line by a certain time and he does it and then that's the thing and that was in my head like when i had like you know, the, the bullet points of the story. But, you know, you just kind of paint yourself into a corner and then um, figure out how to get out of there. And it just turned. So, but by the time I got to the party, I had heightened the world so much that I was like, okay, that rap part is not gonna be enough. Like he's already selling slaves. Why is that gonna, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah. so I, I was there with a the problem. I was like, fuck this, you know, like I could have still done it and it would have worked technically, right? Like a lot of people would have been like, oh, it did this, but you know, I was like, oh, okay. I've, I've made this, made the world as heightened as it is. Cause you know, when I'm writing that first scene there, which is exactly how I sat and wrote it and what made me inspired to write the rest, it wasn't this absurd world. It wasn't this, it wasn't, but, but I started thinking about how stories often just have this one through line and they kind of don't feel true as true because, you know, what people are expecting, what people are accepting about the rest of the world that those people are in is very much whatever the rest of the world has been told to them from movies, from other movies, right? But definitely there were, you know, simpler versions of it, but it just didn't, you know, and I think that that's where, from from writing lyrics, like there's verses where people are like, oh, I got this, I got this great starting line and I got this great ending line and I say this thing in the middle and we're good, right? And there's thousands of songs like that. And maybe um, me not wanting to do songs like that is what has made my musical output not so good. I'm not saying it's a great way to do it, you know? Like there are some people that go in and they, they make, you know, 10 albums per year. And, and out of those, they have maybe just as many good songs as I would have had, you know? But that's just not the way I work. So I'm always like, fuck, I got to fix that line. I got to, you know, I want that whole verse to be feeling like something. I love that. I think that's really inspiring for, I write as well. And I, I'm thinking about something I'm working on right now. And I think that's inspiring to think that it's okay to get yourself into trouble because some of the joy is figuring out how to get out of that trouble and that yeah. you can layer your work. I mean, I can start too complex and then I have to layer it down, but when you can, you know, you can start with one layer. And I think it's really relatable to have that feeling when you're like, I could end here, it would be fine, but I just yeah. figured something else out and I have to keep, <laughs> oh great, another yeah. year of like working on this piece. But I think, <laughs> I think it makes, you can feel that level of layers in this work. I'm really curious because 
this was 2018. It is 2023. Personally, that feels like, as Frank mentioned, 100 years ago. <laughs> like, I feel like 2018, given how much we have gone through, we are, that's, this is literally pre-pandemic or post-pandemic. Well, let's make it even further, is that I finished writing the first draft in 2010. Wow. Damn. I said, I said 2012 a lot when we first put it out because I didn't want people to feel like it was too old. But, I finished <laughs> but now that we can, we can, we can <laughs> no, reveal so, the age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Exclusive. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, when I wrote it, when I wrote it, like, obviously, Obama was in office. But the world is still the same, actually, in, in, in the broad strokes that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, somebody posted online the other day this New York Times story about how people are living in their cars. And they were like... Oh, sorry to, this is like, sorry to bother you. Like he, Boots Riley predicted the future. And I'm like, no, that's what was happening at that time. And for decades before, you know? Yeah, yeah. I wonder because it, um, at least in my experience rewatching it, it was, it's not that it doesn't feel like those things weren't happening. It feels like the absurdism is not, is less absurd now. I think the way, yeah. you know, the conceits that are used in the, the TV shows that are this world I was just watching, like this feels just like the world. It doesn't even I wouldn't even describe this necessarily as surreal capitalism. Yeah. It feels like real to me. Yeah. And and here's the thing is that what I did realize is that and somebody could correct me if I'm wrong, but I've looked before and looked since like unless there was a movie about homelessness, they didn't have any homeless people in it. Sure. Right. So th when he drives to work that first time, that homeless camp he goes by was like right up the road from my house. That was not that was not production design or anything. That was just us driving by the Wood Street uh, complex. And that has changed that particular one. Everybody got ran out of there like earlier this year and not because there were places for them to live, but just because developers uh, got together and have gotten a fake neighborhood organization called Neighbors Together. I mean, it's fucking crazy. They, the, 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 the owner of the Bay Alarm Company, you know, this could be in my movie, the owner of the Bay Alarm Company, <laughs> who's also a giant real estate developer, has founded and funded an organization called Neighbors Together that are, you know, talking about the crime rate and and campaign to get rid of the eviction moratorium and to get rid of the homeless encampments. And uh, they've got a black spokesman who, uh, you know, is takes all the pictures. Right. <laughs> and they've got a quaint little name like Neighbors Together. We talk about this yeah. all the time about how like all the worst lobbying groups always have names that's like love and peace forever group. And it's really like an oil lobby or some shit. I, I, that's such a good point about like the, the world building you do in the film right from the jump is so important. And it, it like, it's, it's not commented on, but you're right. Like there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of poverty that gets portrayed in film as backdrop to the world, which is, which is the world that we live in. It's like, it's all around us, especially if you live in a city, it is like, it is baked into the context of how we live every single day, but it is so rarely portrayed. Honestly, it made me, Watching that opening scene of Cash driving through his neighborhood made it like reminisced uh, Children of Men. Mm. Mm. Just in the way that like Quaron just like has all of this just violence and poverty that is just that is just wi window dressing. It's just setting mm -hmm. and it's like it's not commented on. It's not it's not part of the story. It is just it creates the tone. It creates the world. And it's and funny I because I think that's what made people call it dystopian is me actually showing Oakland. Wow. This Damn. is so I forgive me. I'm like, it's landing on me how this is. I think we just need to like hold here for a moment. This is such an important point. It's so fucked up because we this is the whole point of the show, right? We we are taught subconsciously con continually through our media how to see the world. And you can go through New York right now. And like as a born and bred New Yorker, you know, and anywhere you are, you know, when you have to just navigate to get to you could put on that tunnel vision that you see Cassius try on in the film that you have to, you know, but that the fact that these films erase the world as we know it 
but continually tell us this is a real this is realism this is the real world is brainwashing the fuck out of us yeah wow and on this on this same on the, like the the counterpart of this in sorry to bother you i gotta say i think like my favorite thing i don't know if i would call my favorite but the thing that i was so blown away by in this rewatch was just the concept of the worry-free corporation and worry-free workers so for anyone who hasn't Rewatch this movie, seen this movie. This is going to be the thing that people point to in like 10 years and they're like, oh shit, Boots Riley called it when we, these, this shit start to exist where basically it's legalized slavery. People sign away their lives to worry-free and in turn they are giving the means of subsistence, the, the most basic means of subsistence to uh, contract their entire lifetime to work. Well, it's also not, also not even new in the United States. I mean, it's very prevalent throughout... Uh, you know, a large part of the 20th century, even, right? Sure, so, like company so, towns. Yeah, company towns. And it had been being talked about. And but but yes, again, that's the the heightening the contradiction, showing it in places where it normally wouldn't be and having people not be appalled by it in the movie, which is normally what happens after people have gotten used to it. So it it, it shows that it's been there for a while. It's an incredible plot device. It's an incredible invention. Um, I think like Succession just did something similar in their final season. They had a whole concept called Living Plus. So I think this is like, I think you really hit on something. And I hate to say it, but I would not be surprised if we saw something like this in the real world in the coming decades. People just like so beaten down by the economic system that they're willing to, I guess, like sign over their life to an Amazon or to, you know, some other giant yeah. corporation, just, just so that to not have to fucking worry about having to pay your bills. Hmm. I, I, you know, I definitely have been in places where I've in places in my life where I've thought about that, you know, you kind of wish that you didn't have to worry about those things. And, and so here's the thing. I, I do wish that we had a world where we didn't have to worry about those things. But the question is where do the where does the wealth from that labor go right so yeah and who be, democratically controls it yeah exactly and so uh yeah and and so that's a lot of what we get sold are are things that there's no reason why people yeah of course people like oh housing yeah i want that you know the question ends up being is who ends up controlling all that stuff and therefore has power in the world you know one thing I definitely just want to hit on is I <laughs> I loved Kate Berlant in this as oh, Diana yeah. DeBattery. And it. I loved yeah. that just also within within the office space, uh, we also we'd covered office space on this podcast too. So there was just so much that brought me into that space. But you you capture this thing about work today and worker environment of you don't need health care. You don't need money. You're getting good mm -hmm. vibes. Like the whole yeah. <laughs> we work, like come around yeah. and give you a drink thing. Like that's that's this new economy. I just think that scene captures it so well with like <laughs> the perfect yeah. humor. No, it's it's funny because I knew some folks that actually were trying to organize Google. That's not not not. I mean, since the movie. Right. And they failed. And and one of the reasons that it didn't happen is because one of the managers was like, hey, I'm your friend. Shouldn't I be able to come to these meetings, too? Mm. And people are like, yeah, Phil's our friend. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is a different thing. He should be able to come to these meetings. And uh, that's not the person's name. I don't know. But uh -huh. Phil like was like, hey, this is, you know, we don't need this. We don't need this union. You know, you know me. That that like literally We're going that apple was the picking tactic, Friday. You know? And um and uh yeah, of course a couple years later everybody's like, What what the fuck did we do? Why did <laughs> why did we let Phil into the meeting? I was just going to say it, it hits too. There were those really like what so I think there are some things that are not subtle appropriately. So in this film messaging wise, mm -hmm. which I also appreciate, yeah. but the subtle moments of like that scene when Cassius just goes into the VIP section, it's awful. Yeah. Comes yeah. out and lies about and, it. And that was a, I love that, that. I love that's that. That's one. That's one of the parts that I look at. And I'm like, Oh, because I know. What, so when I wrote it, I put, 10 by 10 room 
And I didn't think about like, I didn't, you know, 10 by 10 sounds small, but you know, and, but we're going so fast and production designer, Jason Kisvarde is amazing. Um, and just firing off so many things. And we're going like, cause that scene almost got cut a bunch of times. You can imagine like how many things we have in the movie that producers are like, why the fuck do you need this? We need to save money. We need something to cut. Yeah, cut that scene, cut the bottle opening, cut the, you know, all these sorts of things. And so that was one that was always on the chopping block. And then we had like a two hour period to do it. And it had to be done while well, we went over here and came back. And I come and I'm like, damn, 10 feet, 10 by 10 is big. You know, like it was supposed to be like, it's supposed to be really, cramped. really yeah, yeah. cramped. Yeah. And so we had to shoot it in these weird ways to kind of get across. It's still worked i'm so happy that didn't get cut yeah i have in my mind how it would have been better. without that scene i think i wouldn't have bought cassius's journey like to me that was the most important scene that's like that's where you see that yeah you you see what 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 he thinks is important yeah Yeah. and that we what we all have i think that's the the psychology of we all trick ourselves in little ways into the lie of capitalism of you know this is enough yeah i like this this is fun. Yeah. And and his whole arc is so it's it it lands so perfectly because he gets like we said pitted between the organizers and the management. He's seeing the success for the first time in his life. That's something that we all any human on earth has like felt that feeling of like what the fuck am I doing? Why doesn't anything I do matter? And for him to get the taste of it for the first time operating within this incredibly destructive industry it's just it's so smart and then and then at the end when i like this is when i realized like i was like oh you turned him into a horse at the end because like he did scab for a while yeah you know he did fuck over everybody for a while nobody nobody gets out of this life alive right you know we we are just what we're what we go through and and so you organize from where you're at and you don't try to you can't try to be pure about that all right, Boots. Well, this is this has been so much fun. Uh, this is the part of the episode where we give awards to this movie. So you're going to get all these awards as the writer-director. <laughs> Our first award is called Best Politics. goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. I would say probably Squeeze, Steven Yun's character. I mean, he's like the lead organizer. He's the one radicalizing his coworkers. Mm. Uh he does try to like hit on Detroit uh, behind Cash's back, but Cash is scabbing at that point. But yeah, I think maybe squeeze best politics. I know that it's cheating our awards that we gave, but I'm going to cheat. I, I mean, I was I, I think it's so I love that in this it's very clear that the good guy, the best politics is the union as a whole. If I had to pick an individual, it might just be because I love Troy the most. I, I think I would give it to Troy because... There's just a clarity and a and a humanity and like that artist soul and still she's on the ground as a left eye like experimenting exploring. There's like um, a fluidity to Troit's politics that I love. So I'm gonna give it to Troit. Boots, you get to give cool. you get to award your oh, own. Oh, you get too. to pick too. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. This isn't just you it's listening a, to us talk. To, to, <laughs> to be clear, uh, squeeze is flirting with her before uh, he starts. Oh, that's true. You know, but that doesn't, I just want to be clear about that because I want (laughs) to make people, I want look for chances to make people messy. Right. And, um, and also all of these characters are me. So (laughs) (laughs) except maybe Steve lift, I don't know, but, uh, But yeah, it, that's the only way, you know, for me to to be able is like there are parts of me that argue with each other, right? Artists, the 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 artist, the uh, the the organizer, the person trying to figure out, you know, if the, if if anything that I'm doing even matters, you know, and so uh, you know that that allows for some some natural tension. You know, someone, you know, it's interesting because with Tessa, we had to have these conversations and obviously uh, she's she's playing it as if her idea of doing what she's doing with art is 
the best answer, right? And uh, and and it's easy for an actor to get to that point, right? Um, <laughs> sure. But but, uh, but for me, when I'm arguing with myself, I don't, I didn't have it be with, with that that her arguing that what she's doing, she says at one point, what she's doing with her art is the same as what Squeeze is doing, and I don't agree with her. I don't agree with that. And and maybe ironically, since I've made Sorry to Bother You, I agree with her more, right? Mm. But before that, you know, like in the sense that people have told me, "Hey, we we were trying to organize during the strike wave. We were trying to organize this thing, and we play, and and, and we weren't sure which way people were going to go. We had them watch Sorry to Bother You, and everybody voted to strike. You know, things oh, like that." Yeah. Like I, I had dozens of things that happened like that um, since then. And um, so maybe I would agree with her more in, in that sense, because I figured out how to, con you know, directly ma make something that's useful for for organizers. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I think you, you, it would go between Squeeze and Detroit. Right. But but not with the, the art that she was making, you know or not with what she was trying sure. to do with that. And and that came out of what I had her doing came out of me uh hanging around the performance art scene in San Francisco for a while. And uh you know what I had happened there was actually something that has happened in various yeah. performances. Okay, so, I will count sorry. that as No, 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 that's good. I will count that as an abstention. Okay, great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our next award is worst politics. Goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. I mean, Steve Lift, right? Got to be Steve Lift. Got to be yeah. Steve Lift. I don't think there's anyone anyone that's... worse than the CEO turning humans into horse people for yeah. and yeah. <laughs> that that Yeah, I mean, and then you could also say at various times Cassius you know, makes decisions uh, yeah. that are just as bad. But, you know, it's at different points in the movie, so. We try to approach this from, like, a societal perspective. Like, Steve yeah. Lift has done the most damage, oh, yes. for yes. sure. Okay, yes. Um, all right, and then our last award is, this would be interesting to hear from you, uh, Best Supporting Character slash Spinoff goes to the supporting character that you would actually want to watch a movie about. I mean, I wanted to know more about Squeeze. I'd like a Squeeze origin story. I thought Squeeze was a fascinating character. I love Steven Yeun. So, yeah, I think Squeeze or, and this is really small, another moment I loved was the moment at the gas station where Cassius comes, doesn't have the pennies, and the, the woman behind, at the gas station. I want the woman at the gas station story. Oh, wow. Ooh, yeah. I would go with... A, a sequel to what happens with the Equisapiens. Like we've got a new, we've got a new species on planet Earth. They are trying to like fight for personhood or like you know whatever. They're trying to secure their rights. There's something. They're also like incredibly powerful. So like, is there some sort of like Equisapien insurrection? Like, are the Equisapiens leading the revolution? I, there's so much that we could do with them there. So so it's interesting because Annapurna. You know, like Annapurna and Macro were kind of like, what's up? There's all these ways we can keep doing this, and especially with streamers now. So uh, they were like, let's let's do a TV show. And I was like, I'm, I'm doing other stuff. Uh, so I don't know when I have, would have time. And it was like, what if it was animated? You know, because also I was like, well, whatever it was, it would be something with the Equisapiens. And the thing about doing the Equisapiens is we really only had one of them, right? And we had to change the tattoos and okay. change the head and change the hair patches, right? So, you know, that's, that's what took a long time with that. So I was like, wow, you know, we'd have to make a bunch of those probably to really get things done. So it was like, okay, let's do it animated. But I was like, I really wouldn't have time to write it and you know I, I i i let them pitch me different people you know that would do it and it was like very few people have the same passions i do the the same analysis of the world and the same mm. passions that would be allowed to show run a show i would say that and maybe that will change soon hopefully also it's kind of hard like do you let this just become some sort of like 
hey, we can do a show. Like the reason why my stuff I think that is good is because not just because of the politic or the idea, but because I really want it to happen. Right. As opposed to I'm glad I got this gig. Well, that's refreshing to hear. It's like you have like a real, uh, uh, real clarity in what you want your art to look like and to sound like and to feel like and, 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 and an unwillingness to compromise, which I think like so much, so much art gets watered down. I, because I would of love compromise. to take that compliment that I have, a, but, but there's, there's compromises happening. Sure. Sure. All, all the time, but it's just, I already have so much that by the time I'm compromising down to here, <laughs> it seems like I haven't compromised at all. Um, this has been such a delightful conversation before we wrap up we like to ask our guests how they as artists as people in their daily lives strive to uh, practice your values those can be labor values anti-capitalist values you uh, prepared me for that question and uh, you know I think I'm at an impasse because I try to make all my work about those values right mm -hmm. Uh, and and so um, and that work ends up taking a lot of time. So and I try to uh, try to l use the uh, platform that I have to help out campaigns that I, that that, uh, you know, I, th I think are worthwhile. But I also try to, you know, I'm trying to make work that organizers can use. And hmm. so uh, that's the only way I can really claim. You know, I, so I, yeah. Well, it's incredibly important and to like to resonate what, you know, people have reached out to you over the years telling you about how your film has inspired them. I know I have a bunch of comrades who all point to Sorry to Bother You and they're like, damn, that's like one of the most important movies that came out in the last few decades. So I think you're right. I think you're fucking doing it, man. So uh, thank you. Thank you thank so you. much for your and work. I do want to tell everybody, I think a lot of people that have seen Sorry to Bother You have not seen uh, I'm a Virgo. And so I want people to, to, to see it. So check it out if you haven't seen it. Awesome. Boots, thank you so much for your time. Thank we appreciate you it. Thank you so all much. Right, thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to find all of that info. For next week's movie, we will be watching Amy Heckerling's masterpiece, the teen comedy satire, Clueless. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye.